let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, they are the focus of evil in the modern world. This is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. What I'm describing now is a plan and a hope for the long term. The march of freedom and democracy, which will leave Marxism, Leninism on the ash heap of history as it has left other tyrannies, which stifle the freedom and muzzle the self-expression of the people. Very shrewd, very capable. I have enormous respect for him. I've been criticized for saying that. Uh, no, I have enormous respect for him. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. If you want to look at somebody who's responsible for what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, just look at Joe Biden. But listen, we need to be saying to the Europeans, you've got to do more in your own defense. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. The mangle Mussolini, Donald Trump, did what he did best on Tuesday evening, heaping praise upon Russian leader Vladimir Putin. This time, the twice-impeached ex-president lauded the authoritarian's leader's geniusness invasion of Ukraine as very savvy. I went in yesterday and there was a television screen and I said, this is genius. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's gonna go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're gonna keep peace all right. Just ahead of President Joe Biden's announcement that he will impose a round of firm economic sanctions against Russia for deploying military troops into the Ukraine, Trump, who was impeached for withholding military aid as a way to pressure Kiev to meddle in the 2020 election, claimed on right-wing talk radio that this never would have happened under his presidency. Think of it. Here's a guy who's very savvy. I know him very well. Very, very well. By the way, this never would have happened with us. Had I been in office, not even thinkable. This would never have happened. But here's a guy that says, you know, uh, I'm going to declare a big portion of Ukraine independent. He used the word independent. And we're going to go out and we're going to go in and we're going to help keep peace. You got to say that's pretty savvy. Though the former president and his loyalists continue to argue that Trump would have kept Putin from invading Ukraine, it was the then president's own team that said he looked incredibly weak after an obsequious Trump kowtowed to Putin during the 2018 Helsinki summit. Furthermore, before leaving office, Trump spent years weakening NATO and advocating for U.S. troop drawdowns in Europe. It's one of the most extraordinary moments between an American president and a Russian leader. They're meeting frame by Friday's Justice Department indictment of 12 Russian agents for election meddling and the judgment of U.S. intelligence agencies, including Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats, that Russia interfered. President Trump asked, who do you believe, President Putin or the U.S. intelligence community? His answer? People came to me, Dan Coats came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. 
I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. And the president complimenting an offer from Putin. Instead of turning over the indicted Russian agents, Russian officials would question the agents themselves, with special counsel Bob Mueller present. I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. And what he did is an incredible offer. He offered to have the people working on the case come and work with their investigators with respect to the 12 people. I think that's an incredible offer. The former president often accuses his enemies falsely of treason, but his own giddy rush to side with a foreign leader who is proving to be an enemy of the United States and the West is shocking even by Trump's shameless standards. Politics, it was said, used to end at the American border. Well, not anymore. I think it's deeply disturbing for the former president to bandwagon and to cheerlead for uh, uh, the world's probably most belligerent authoritarian and uh, an enemy of the United States that if he could, if he, th he thought he could get away with it, would eliminate the United States in its entirety. This is the kind of person that we're dealing with. And this is who the president, the former president of the United States chooses to support. And Tucker Carlson is like the most obsequious, absurd uh, character, caricature of a, you know, of a, an entertainer that's doing anything and everything he can to kind of uh, fluff up his ratings. So it, I, I, it's hard for me to take it seriously. Trump also sent an unmistakable message to Republicans who are already playing into Putin's hand by branding the current president as weak. That siding with a US foe is the way into the ex-president's affections ahead of this year's midterm primaries. Listening to these mini-me's bloviate about Putin is nauseating. Worse, though, is the blatant hypocrisy of these people accusing Biden of being weak and appeasing Putin. Tonight, Republicans are uniting against President Joe Biden and siding with a foreign autocrat, Vladimir Putin, as he is invading a sovereign and peaceful country. That in and of itself should be enough for all Americans to unite against Putin, but that is not what's happening. Very shrewd, very capable. I have enormous respect for him. I've been criticized for saying that. Uh, no, I have enormous respect for him. Uh, he was also an interlocutor that was uh, always well-informed and deeply clear about what Russian interests were. I, I appreciated that. Uh, it required the same from us, from me, from my team. We had to be equally prepared and equally protective of the interests that matter to the United States. He is very savvy, very shrewd. I think it's ridiculous that we're focused on this border in Ukraine uh, I don't, I gotta be honest with you, I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. I do care about the fact that in my community right now, the leading cause of death among 18 to 45 year olds is Mexican fentanyl that's coming across the southern border. I'm sick of Joe Biden focusing on the border. And in New York, a Republican candidate for Congress is speaking positively about the Russian autocrat, tweeting, quote, Putin protects the church, tradition, and Russian culture to an extent that globalists cannot accept. He added that we deal with far worse governments regularly. We've not seen anything just yet. This war that's about to unfold is going to have tens of thousands of casualties. We've not witnessed anything like this. When he conducted his campaign against Chechnya, thousands died. But that was, uh, we, we were distracted, we weren't paying attention, we weren't as connected. This is going to be pay, uh, played all over every screen there is. And the Republicans that have been 
been pandering and catering to Donald Trump and to Vladimir Putin are going to own this. If it all seems insane, even by Trump's standards, it's because it is insane. What comes next will be the inevitable attempt by Fox News, Trump's official propaganda arm, to clean up his statements. They will say that Trump was trolling the media. Just like he was trolling the press that time, he suggested we inject ourselves with bleach. Well, here's the thing. Trump wasn't fucking trolling anybody. That would suggest he has a sense of humor, which we all know he doesn't. There's simply no governor between his brain and his mouth. What he thinks he says, and he meant what he said. The man unbashedly loves Vladimir Putin. He wishes he could send the U.S. Army into Mexico. Your problem here, which is that the kind of bipartisanship that we once counted on during the Cold War and afterward uh, just isn't there anymore. And that Putin has to notice that. I mean, he has an entire political party that I, that that tends to agree with Donald Trump, uh, with Donald Trump, that thinks you know he is a genius and that he's. Uh, um, you know, pretty popular within that party. He, it's something he clearly has to take into account and it works in his favor. There's also the possibility, which I wouldn't put past Trump, that he said what he said to change the press narrative around the fact that he could be mere weeks away from an indictment. Every time he needs to raise his visibility, change the subject or respond to an attack, Trump says something insane and the cycle starts anew. His strategy is to shock the media system by being outrageous, by being offensive, by being fucking provocative. This used to be the domain of his Twitter feed, which was a non-stop stream of invective and a peek into the mind of Donald Trump and his litany of grievances. But absent his platform and myriad of investigations coming his way, Trump desperately needed everyone to change the channel. And fucking presto, Ukraine. Putin, and away we go. It will ultimately prove to be Pyrrhic victory in that what came out of his mouth is so out of bounds and so fucking inflammatory and counter to decades of GOP precedent that he risks further dividing the Republican Party. But what does he care? It's always about Trump. Everyone else can go fuck themselves. My gut says that something far more sinister is happening. And Trump's desire to both praise Putin while changing the narrative around his own troubles plays into a larger obsession that the far right has with authoritarian leaders. And this kind of weird fanboying for Vladimir Putin, who they think, I think they see as kind of the leader of a, of a white Christian Europe, which is a, a fantasy, really. It's a kind of a GOP wish casting. Um, but... They, it's not just criticism of Biden, it's coupled to this obvious admiration for a Russian dictator. Shortly after the White House announced the first wave of sanctions against Russia for troops entering eastern Ukraine in a move described by President Biden as the beginning of an invasion, Tucker Carlson had a question for Americans. Why do you hate Russian President Vladimir Putin? But even with the Ukraine conflict and Russia's interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, the Fox News host described the tension in the region as merely a border dispute and wondered why Americans should despise the Russian president. Since the day that Donald Trump became president, Democrats in Washington have told you you have a patriotic duty to hate Vladimir Putin. 
It's not a suggestion, it's a mandate. Anything less than hatred for Putin is treason. It might be worth asking yourself, since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked my business and kept me indoors for two years? Carlson has told his viewers that there's no reason the United States should assist Ukraine in its fight against Russia and has recently doubled down on his support of Putin. The Fox News host, who acknowledged that he's attempting to interview Putin, said this week that it was not treason, it is not un-American to support Putin. It's the whole point of America, he said on Monday. Throughout his five and a half years as a candidate and then president, Donald Trump made a habit of treating Putin like his best friend and long-lost brother. It was strangely over-the-top and uncomfortable to watch. Most of the time, you just shake your head and think, why is he doing that? And the GOP response, as with many of Trump's more idiotic statements, was to simply shrug it off and pretend like it never happened. An extraordinary moment where you do have, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin's disinformation being channeled through American politics. And again, you could dismiss these voices, except that, look, Vladimir Putin has the measure of Donald Trump. Uh, remember, he stood next to him in Helsinki, where Donald Trump actually sided with Vladimir Putin over, over his own government. Uh, has weakened NATO, uh, was willing to uh, shake down the government of Ukraine. Uh, you know, keep in mind, you know, all of those things that, that, have, that have happened. And now you hear all of these voices that Vladimir Putin has to know are close to this MAGA world, who are uh, taking his side, who are, uh, you know, uh, smearing the uh, smearing Ukraine and Ukrainian uh, officials and, and providing justifications for what Vladimir Putin is doing. So Vladimir Putin's mind, he sees a weakened United States. He sees his disinformation out there. And you have to ask whether or not he thinks that the West will blink and whether or not if Donald Trump comes back to the White House, um, that he will achieve a triumph beyond his wildest imaginings of a few years ago. The result? With Russia now queuing up one of the biggest military confrontations in Europe in decades, Trump's Putin love has crept even more into the conservative mainstream and has gone well beyond merely suggesting that Putin is one tough cookie. It is often involved suggesting that he's not really a foe at all, or even that his invasion of Ukraine is justified or is somehow our fault. With it comes dismissals of Putin's human rights abuses and the Russian geopolitical threat that top Republicans assured us as recently as a decade ago was unparalleled. And now for the main event. Trump's Russia posture in his defense of Vladimir Putin amounts to gaslighting on an industrial scale. It's something we have seen from Trump and his GOP allies, not just when it comes to Putin in Russia, but also in terms of Trump's big lie and what happened on January 6th. The pattern is part of my next guest, Nandini Jami, calls the disinformation economy. At top of the funnel is Trump and the right-wing media machine that pumps out this bullshit on an industrial scale. Behind it, though, are the thousands of hidden nodes that monetize this information, effectively subsidizing disinformation and allowing it to flourish and further proliferate. 
In 2016, Nandini co-founded Sleeping Giants, the social media campaign that first led advertisers to flee Breitbart after the 2016 elections. At Sleeping Giants, she led campaigns that convinced advertisers to cut with Fox News, The O'Reilly Factor, and Tucker Carlson Tonight. The campaign won a Con Gold Lion and a Webby Award for public service and activism. Steve Bannon, Breitbart's executive chairman, was captured on video in 2017 saying that the campaign caused Breitbart's advertising revenues to drop approximately 90%. Nowadays, Nandini co-writes Branded, a newsletter that investigates the advertising industry's ties to disinformation and propaganda operations. In addition, she is the co-founder of Check My Ads, the ad tech industry's first watchdog. Nandini joins me today on Mea Culpa to explain how the disinformation economy works and shares with me her terrifying moments in the crosshairs of far-right trolls and other hate actors sent by the far-right talk show host Dan Bongino. You won't believe what you're about to hear, folks, but pay attention because it's all true. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Nandini. I want to start out by discussing um, what you call the disinformation economy. Now, most folks are aware that there is an entire ecosystem out there of websites that traffic in hate speech and conspiracy, but less seem to understand how it's supported. If you would do me a favor, walk me and my listeners through how this works and who are the biggest players in the space? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to help you understand the disinformation economy. It's all around us, but... It's something that very few people um, really understand. So the disinformation economy, or what we call the disinformation economy, um, really the ground zero of where that is, is in the advertising technology ecosystem. This complex uh, set of pipes and, and, uh, and, and companies that work to um, monetize monetize the entire media ecosystem around us. And they're companies that we've never heard of. They're companies that, you know, while we know exactly what Facebook and Google do, these are companies that are sitting on the other end of the, on the other end of the equation. So while a company like Facebook will push disinformation and bad actors to the top of their Facebook algorithm, um, it's these companies that are on the other end of the spectrum, on the other end of the equation, that are monetizing it by placing ads on the websites of these um, of these of these bad actors. So when you see those articles, those extreme those um, those increasingly extremist articles on Facebook, what you need to know is that those people are not making money on Facebook itself. Facebook is making money off of that, but. Where these guys make their real money, where they cash out, is on the other end. When you click on the link and you go to their website, and as you read that article, ads pop up all over the place, that's where they make their real money. And that is what is uh, that is what we see as being the disinformation economy. Now, the advertising ecosystem, just digital advertising in general, is a economy that represents at least $400 billion a year and growing every year. It's supposed to be like $600 billion in the next few years. So this is an enormous amount of money that is being sent to, uh, to 
to, I mean, potentially an enormous amount of money that's being sent to the wrong places. So what we're taking on at Check My Ads Institute is we're really understanding these ties between these ad tech companies that, again, most people haven't heard of and these disinformation outlets, because it's clear that they're making money and they're they're making quite a lot of money, but it's unclear exactly how it's getting there. You know, it's interesting because I knew absolutely nothing about this space until I became involved with Trump in the presidential campaign. And I remember reading a story about um, these Macedonian teenagers that made a shitload of money writing and disseminating these um, fake news stories and promoting them through Facebook and Google and all of these other um, larger you know, um, social media outlets. TikTok is an example and so on. And then I just, I remember starting to look into it and saying, wow, this is really incredible in terms of how this misinformation, this disinformation campaign is actually affecting the U.S. presidential election. And, you know, how things were sort of just being promoted out there. And then, of course, you know, I, I was just curious to see which of the countries that are like at the, the top of the heap. And you have Bosnia, I think, was, was one of them. And then they had Hungary and um, Moldova. You had Romania, you had, uh, right? And Slovakia. So you had all of the former Eastern European bloc, you know, countries that seemed just to be leading the pack on this. Let me ask you this. I mean, what, if anything, you know, can be done here? Because it appears that they've managed to figure out how to get past the, the wall, right? That, that block wall that they have um, at these, you know, larger, like the Googles and the Facebook. How do they do it? And, you know, how do we stop it? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It is the $400 billion question, in fact. So, what we have found is that the, well, first of all, there is there is disinformation that's coming from abroad. There's disinformation that's coming domestically. And frankly, we don't know how, what, where, and what those motivations are. Sometimes, you know, for a lot of these Eastern Europeans sort of groups that or even just kids, right? They 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 just did this. They they did this for fun. Like they did it for fun, and it was lucrative. It was it made them more money than the jobs that they would otherwise be working at. So why wouldn't you do it? And that really speaks to the the lack of regulation and the lack of any kind of accountability within the advertising technology industry. The fact that any person, any one of us, can just talk, like go go on the internet, make up a new website, and just start putting out disinformation, fake news stories, whatever, and then just start getting paid for it by some of the biggest brands in the world, because you can just plug right into these ad exchanges, into these ad tech companies that, again, represent the biggest brands in the world, multi-billion dollar budgets. And just like, you can just access that by creating your fake news website. That's that's really the heart of this problem. The fact that it's so easy for um for for them to create create one website, make money off of that, and then use that money to reinvest in more and more disinformation websites. When we talk about uh, disinformation rings and fake news rings and this network of disinformation, this flood of bullshit as uh, flooding the zone with bullshit, as Steve Bannon once said, um, or probably said a, a million times because that's his MO, that is made possible by advertising dollars. 
And, and again, there's an unlimited, near unlimited amount of money that is coming into these, you know, bad actors are taking advantage of. Now, again, some of them are just kids who realize that they can make a quick buck by making up, making up stuff and getting it into the algorithm and, and, and driving traffic to their websites. But then there are people who are using this as a real way to create sustainable propaganda and sustainable disinformation narratives that continue to not only make them money, but also help them to, um, you know, to, to overwhelm our media ecosystem and, and, and drive the future of our country. You know, I've often said that Facebook and, again, other social media platforms, they don't reinvest money into their technology the way that they should, right? They're technically in charge. I mean, how could you live, for example, without Google? How could some people, they, they were stating that you can't really live without Facebook or, you know, or some of these, again, other large uh, social media platforms. And then I say that they have then a responsibility to police themselves. They can't talk about how, well, everybody's entitled to First Amendment speech and that if you know that this is coming from an outside source, they have to have some way to figure it out. But they don't want to try to put the money back into technology to figure out who these bad actors are coming out of Romania and, you know, and, um, you know, uh, Bosnia. And so they're not interested in that. They would rather close their eyes to it, allow it just to happen, to claim ignorance in that we're constitutionalists. We're not going to violate people's First Amendment rights to say whatever they want. Instead, they'd rather give that profit to themselves and their shareholders. And I think that's really where the U.S. government needs to step in and start taking controls and regulating to a to a much greater degree than they've actually done so far. I hear you, Michael. Um, that is something that we hear a lot. But I I, you know, I'm going to push back on that because, well, first of all, the First Amendment is a relationship between the citizen and the government. And there is no government involved in an exchange between the citizen and Facebook or the citizen and Google. These are all these are all private companies who are effectively data mining companies, right? Like they exist not to advance free speech or promote any of that, any of our, our government ideals, but they they exist solely to make money and they make money through advertising. Um, and then and the way that they do that is by keeping you on their platforms, monetizing you as a user, and then selling you to to advertisers who want to get in front of you. Now, with that comes a set of responsibilities, not necessarily to us, the user, but to the advertiser. So every one of these companies, Facebook, Google, plus all the other ad exchanges, um, again, on the other side of the equation on these websites, they all have legal agreements in place with advertisers about what kind of content will and will not be allowed on their platform in order to keep those advertisers safe. This is the concept of brand safety. Brand safety is one of the most important, highest priority topics to marketers today. Something like 80% or more, you know, marketers who are, who are surveyed said that brand safety is the thing that keeps them up at night. They do not want their ads to appear next to hate speech or disinformation yeah. or anything else that could be deemed um, unsafe for, for their brand or to their customers, to their employees, um, and to other stakeholders. 
And they are willing to, they're willing to take action when they know that their ads are appearing on, on or next to these sites, or when they realize that when they learn that their ads or their ad budgets are funding this type of, uh, this type of content. So the the levers that that we pull at Check My Ads have nothing to do with the government, but they have to do with going straight to the advertisers and letting them know when their ads are funding this type of content. And what we have found, and what I've personally found since since 2016, since uh, uh, since I started running Sleeping Giants, is that advertisers, when presented with information that threatens their brand, they will pull their ads from this content. And that is how in 20, 2016, 2017, when we started Sleeping Giants, we were able to demonetize Breitbart to the tune of 90% within the first three months of our campaign. So Breitbart, which was uh, just super happy with the with what they did in, in uh, during the elections, um, flooding the zone with bullshit, they, they were set to make $8 million that year in 2017. They were set to open up offices in... Germany and France, and they canceled all those plans. They they uh, they lost ninety percent of that, and that's not that's not me making making that up. Steve Bannon himself said that on um, on camera. So so that is that really is the playbook for taking on these type of bad actors, and we can do that without going to the government. I still believe the government has a responsibility as well. They regulate That's everything. Fair. I mean, they regulate, you know, your soap. They regulate your shampoo, the drugs that you that you take. They regulate soda. I mean, you know, so my feeling is this is more dangerous than any of that, to be very honest with you. But one of the things Absolutely. that I, yeah, one of the things that I notice is that, you know, hate and conspiracy turns out to be extremely profitable. What kind of, because I couldn't find this anywhere as I was researching this, what kind of dollars are some of these websites pulling in on a monthly basis? I have to suspect it's got to be big numbers. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And um, while I don't have, well, here, like this is, this is really the core of the problem with the digital advertising industry today. We cannot... We cannot know how much money these companies are pulling in. We can create estimates based on um, on certain inputs, and one of those estimates is uh, the Gateway pundit during the the last election made around we believe around 1.1 million dollars from Google Ads alone. And again, Breitbart made about eight million, or was set to make eight million dollars in revenue in 2017. When I when we wrote about a handful of fake news websites, disinformation websites that a company called OpenWeb was monetizing, they came out with a statement and said that they had earned about five hundred thousand dollars off of those websites. So the numbers vary. There's a whole lot of what you need to take away from what I'm telling you is that we don't know anything about the amount of 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 what happens when an advertiser turns on an ad campaign and what uh we don't know what happens between when an advertiser turns on an ad campaign and the ad ends up on a website we don't know what happens in that little black box it's just a little black box where things happen and and then ads end up on disinformation sites and that that is really the crux of the problem because these ad tech companies, again, and there's there's thousands of them, and even people who work in ad tech don't know what they do. They 
decide how this money is being spent. So no one is sitting there actually, like the advertiser doesn't sit there and make decisions about where their ads should go, right? Like Google, Google makes those decisions that they're the biggest ad exchange in, in the world, of course, but there's there's thousands of little companies that inject themselves into this into this process, just in the process of placing placing an ad for targeting, for optimization, for um, geo targeting, like all kinds of like like you know fancy tech stuff, machine learning, AI, blah blah blah. But at the end of the day, no one knows how they work. They won't tell you. They won't show you your own. A lot of these companies, by the way, I, you know, uh, Claire and I, my my business partner, Claire and I, we also run uh, an LLC. So we run an agency and we work with clients. And we've found that these companies won't even give up key information about where their ads are, where their ads are being blocked from and where they're being placed. So as an advertiser, if I want to find out where my ads went, such a simple question, where are my ads appearing? Where are you blocking my ads, a service that I pay you for? They will not tell us. They and will what's not the, tell why? us. Why? What's the reason? Either they don't know oh. or they don't want to dis, uh, divulge that info. They don't want to divulge that information. So they'll come up with all kinds of uh, you know, stalling tactics. Oh, we have to check in with with so and so, the supervisor. Oh, it's going to be so expensive. You're you're going to have to put up like twenty, thirty thousand dollars for us to pull that information for you. Oh, we have to create a, a, a special dashboard for you. Now, every advertiser, and and by the way, this happened with a, a Fortune five hundred company that we worked with. A Fortune five hundred company. They said no. We we're we're not going to give you that information unless you spend more money with us. I mean, there's all kinds of shady hostage style tactics that are taking place within the ad tech industry that make it impossible for uh, an advertiser, even the most powerful, you know, uh, influential and 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 um, uh, famous, uh, not, you know, national brands from being able to access the information they need to keep their ads away from disinformation. Now, the reason that's taking place and the reason that these ad tech companies are so shady to begin with is because they don't want you to find out what is going on within your ad spend, which is that not only are your ads appearing on disinformation by default, but also they're appearing on tons of garbage websites that people don't even visit, like all these bullshit, like content farms and, um, and like fake, you know, fake sites and like, bot like you know sites for bots and all that stuff there's so much ad fraud taking place too so yeah that's that's lucrative as well so they don't want to they don't want you to know anything about your ad spend they just want you to think they want you to believe that they are they are uh good stewards of your brand and they they're afraid of what you might find if you dig into the details and that's that's what we're battling here the the lack of transparency for the advertiser again the advertiser is the customer they should have access to that and again if and and by the way this is not just for the big advertisers if you are a small advertiser your your money i can guarantee you is being just shoveled into a dirt hole. <laughs> like you might as well just flush it down the toilet. There's, I mean, if you go in, if you, if you are running a ad campaign and you just do a, you know, you go through Google's defaults, you will find that I'm just making a guess. At least 50% is going to be garbage. If you go and look at your site placements, it's garbage. So, and the, and the reason for that is because there's only a handful, not a handful. There's only so many websites that people actually visit. Right. Let me give you let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, because I know I'm being a little bit theoretical here. So um, so an early example of of our work led to. Um, so, you know, Chase Bank, 
they did an audit of their advertising, their digital advertising after someone notified them of their ads on a hate site. So they went in and they found that their ads were appearing on 400,000 websites. Take a second to think about that number, 400,000 websites. That is an enormous amount. (laughs) That is an enormous number of websites. So what they did was they experimented with a manual list of 5,000. So they took 5,000 websites that they know they wanted to be on because those 400,000 websites were programmatic. That was like someone else doing that. That was their ad tech vendors putting them on all those sites. So they put them, they put themselves on 5,000 websites to see what that would do to their campaign. And they found, drum roll please, no change in performance. So so they were paying to have their ads placed on 400,000 websites, and then they they cut that down by 95% or 98, whatever that that percentage would be, and they found no change in performance. And that's because all those other ad placements were garbage, and they don't want you to know that. And so that's why they make it so difficult for you to find out where your ads went, and that's why you don't know your ads are appearing on disinformation. That's what we're up against. I still think government regulation is desperately needed. But um, Nandini, I want to ask you this. In 2021, you started Check My Ads, whose mission was to, and I'm going to quote from, dismantle the disinformation economy. Now, your current campaign is aimed at the biggest voices behind the January 6th attack, something we talk about a lot here on Maya Culpa. I mean, you could possibly be the first non-political guest out of like 170 episodes so we're excited to have you on and right but i would love to know who's on your target list and why uh yeah i'm happy to tell you dan bongino because he was i mean we all know what dan bongino has been up to charlie kirk sent a bunch of uh busload of people to capitol hill that day he he absolutely had a role in organizing the insurrection Steve Bannon, Mr. War Room himself, Glenn Beck. Uh, I think he said something about, I mean, I don't know. He had just tons of videos on the Blaze, Blaze Media, about uh, just seeding, just paving the way for, uh, you know, fraudulent elections and so on. Tim Poole and Tucker Carlson. So those are our six, uh, those are our six biggest voices in in uh, inciting, organizing, or promoting the January 6th insurrection. And uh, we chose them as well with their ad tech systems in mind. We know that each of these individuals is supported by advertising technology companies and that we wanted to really take some of this obscure uh, information about what we've learned about the the ad tech industry and really help the public understand how this shady industry is propping up people like RJ6 folks. You know, what's interesting is the six names that you mentioned, they're all conservative talk radio. And I can tell you from a document, and I remember seeing this not too long, I think it was uh, about a month or so ago, uh, the New Yorker had an article about Dan Bongino. And it was entitled Dan Bongino in the big business of returning Trump to power. I mean, the only way to return Donald Trump to power 
is through this misinformation, disinformation campaigns. Fuck, Donald's been doing it since, you know, we were looking to run in 2012. Everything about him is misinformation and, and disinformation. So why shouldn't these why shouldn't these assholes do it too? And they're profiting from it. If you look to see how much money conservative talk radio makes, you know, whether it was the Glenn Becks, whether it was the Rush Limbaugh's, Dan Bongino, Candace Owens, you start to look even on the list. And I'm always with thank God for Maya Culpa, you know, we're always in the top. 3% of all of the news podcasts. We're doing like 1.38, 1.39 million downloads a month, right? I'd like to be doing 1.3 million, you know, downloads, you know, a day. You know, the way like for example, um Joe Rogan is doing. I'll get there. It's going to take a little time. But here's the crazy <laughs> thing. They're doing it off of misinformation in each and every one. Each and every one, each and every day is spilling another lie. Now, is it for the benefit of their Fuhrer? Probably not. I think they're all fucking self-motivated. And I think that there's got to be a massive amount of profit into it. Look, Dan Bongino, if I'm not mistaken, he was a Secret Service agent years ago. Now he's making, I don't even know how many millions of dollars a year, 10, 15 million a year off of his, off of his show. So is it not worth it for him to continue this misinformation, disinformation campaign? There's no reason, there's no incentive for people to tell the truth, which is the question that I'm really looking for. What do we need to do in order to change that, in order to make it that you can profit off of misinformation and disinformation, especially stuff that puts the American people in jeopardy, like the COVID-19 lies that are constantly being talked about. Yeah, this is really the, the the crux of the matter. And this is exactly what we are focusing on in our J6 campaign. We know that folks like Dan Bongino are making an enormous profits uh, from, from advertising. I mean, it's from advertising. They have subscribers as well. But there's a reason these guys all come back crawling back to the advertising industry. Steve Bannon, for example, we got him kicked off of Breitbart, ads on Breitbart. Um, we've, we, I don't know, he, he, uh, Rahim Kassam, his, his associate, we got him, we, we got him kicked off of his ads and they, they keep coming back. They keep finding ways to get back into the advertising ecosystem for a good reason, because this represents an unlimited amount of money for them. It's free money as long as they can plug themselves into the system. And they do it in so many different ways. And I'll get into that in a second. But with 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 someone like uh with someone like Bongino, who has been a bad actor for so long, it really comes down to uh it comes down to, again, the ad tech industry allowing them, ad exchanges and middlemen and all kinds of supply partners, allowing them into the supply chain, allowing them into that pool by default, by categorizing them within the system as politics or news or entertainment, treating them just like just like they're you know anybody else, and, and then funneling money to them. So what we do knowing that, and I, I mentioned this before, each of these companies has some set of legal uh, legal guidelines, policies in place against disinformation. So, so um, let me tell you, like companies like, and again, these are probably companies you haven't heard of, but I'm intimately familiar with. They're all they're all ad exchanges um, placing ads on these websites. So like OpenX, Magnite, uh, Thirty Three Across. 
basis technology. Like there's, there's all kinds of companies like these and they all have supply policies specifically with language. Like we do not, we, uh, we do not monetize content and we do not allow content into our inventory that, uh, promotes, um, that features misleading content that harasses, that incites abuse, that incites violence, that incites, that promotes discrimination against people based on their uh, age, religion, ethnicity, what have you. And so this is this is specific enough language that if we take that evidence to the ad exchange and we make it known, and when you know when they can't turn you know they can't turn turn away from it, that is when we get results. So that is why when we uh, when we started our campaign against Dan Bongino, it was so easy for us to, and I think I, I think within just a few weeks, I, you know, we got him kicked off of like six ad exchanges just by taking that evidence to, to the ad exchange and sort of holding them accountable publicly. Because again, these ad exchanges are not, they're, they're not Facebook, right? First of all, they're not monopolies. Like they're not that big. And a second, they're not spending their own money. They're spending their clients' money. That is the brand. That is the advertiser. So if the advertiser, aka the client, finds out that they've been spending money on something that is against their supply policy, that's that's an issue for them. That's a legal issue for them. So that's that's how we that's how we move so quickly. We're able to take that information with Dan Bongino. Um, you know, I, I you know I, I we I tend to go one ad exchange at a time. So we contact one. They're dropped by them, and then the the other ad exchanges follow. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of leadership in the advertising industry. So when, once one guy does it, the next one will do it, and so it just becomes it becomes easier and easier for them to um, for that for that for that you know, falling dominoes to take place. And, um, and that was how we were able to get him kicked off of six ad exchanges. And in the meantime, Bongino, uh, Bongino did what he does best, which is to create a narrative and turn it into more and more to something more and more extreme, because that's all they know. That is their playbook. Their playbook is taking a seed of an idea and then taking it to the worst possible place. So Bongino started a narrative about me. At first, he started to feature me on his show, talking about me as being a cat lady, uh, someone with six or seven cats, just completely made up just whatever about me. I, I don't even know where he got the cat thing from. And then uh, and then he and his team started to follow me on Twitter. And like every tweet that I wrote, they would be like, um, They'd be like, oh, are you listening to this George Soros funded stooge, this communist? You must be communist, too. They said that to brands like Ford. Uh, they said it to Equinox, the, you know, the fitness center. Like, I mean, just the most unhinged stuff. And by the way, this is the hand that feeds them. The biggest problem that's but the biggest thing that you have with this is that they actually have a massive audience. I know the feeling that you had when I was sitting at a friend's son's bar mitzvah. And all of a sudden, I'm not joking. This was I was sitting at this kid's bar mitzvah. And all of a sudden, Donald Trump is tweeting about me. It was the first time he started putting out tweets. And at that time, he had like, what? 80 million followers and so on. And all of a sudden, everything just comes crashing down. And your entire social media platform goes under attack. It's not just your social media platform. It's also your cell phone, your emails. Everything starts coming under attack. You start getting notifications from Google, people trying to hack into your account. I mean, they don't realize that the power that they have and the worst is when they start 
building up the hatred for you with their supporters. But I want to ask you this. All of this started in 2017, right? When you started this campaign called Sleeping Giants that aimed to defund Breitbart, as you just, you know, were explaining. If you would just do this, because I'm a little confused. This is all very new to me. And I bet it's very new in terms of to my listeners. Walk me and my listeners through how this started and what you discovered about the inroads Steve Bannon had made with these massive advertising holding companies like Havis, right? What was the end result of your campaign? Absolutely. So this is what happened. Um, I'm, I work in marketing, so I always had a little bit of an idea of how ads work. But um, basically, we found uh, myself and my partner at the time, we uh, we we found some really, really big national brands on Breitbart. And we knew that they did not place their ads there themselves. We knew that that was because that those ads had been placed for them on a high engagement website. And so we started to contact these advertisers on Twitter with screenshots of their own ads to let them know their ads were on here. Uh, And these, you know, this was a very sensitive time. It was right after the elections and a lot of people were upset and, and brands were you know, really wanted to distance themselves from anything like Breitbart. So they came back to us immediately and said, you know, we 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 didn't know our ads were, were here. Thank you for letting us know. And we're going to block it. So they they would go into their their Google ads dashboard and then put Breitbart.com on their exclusion list. And then their ads won't appear there anymore. And so what this started was a, a just this in just a snow, it's a, a movement that snowballed into something so much bigger than we ever imagined. So while we were going um, so, sort of advertiser to advertiser, initially just the two of us, people saw that this was creating results. So they started to join in. They started to take screenshots on their own, tag the company, and we would retweet them and amplify it. And then so our, our you know, then the company would respond. And then so our our campaign grew in this way into something much bigger. Now, what happened behind the scenes, and I didn't work in the ad tech, uh, in the advertising industry before this, so I didn't know, but at this time, advertisers were going to their to their agencies and agencies were going to the ad exchanges, again, the, 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 the supply chain. It was going up the supply chain and they were all freaking out. Advertisers were all freaking out. And so so this went up to the top very quickly. And ad exchanges, which, so again, ad exchanges represent the entire system. So like that, they bring thousands of advertisers to market and they bring just like hundreds of thousands of websites to market. So these ad exchanges blocked Breitbart from their inventory entirely. So they cut Breitbart off from thousands of advertisers all at once. So that is how our movement was so successful so quickly. Yes, we could have gone advertiser to advertiser for the rest of our lives, but where the real action lies is in those ad exchanges that represent these thousands of advertisers and just automatically just funnel funnel just insane amounts of money to these websites that are high performing. And so Breitbart, um, that's how we got Breitbart to you know, to lose so much money in such a, in such a short amount of time. And then we started to take on other websites and, uh, and, and, and other, you know, bad actors. And so the, the movement grew from there. And when we started check my ads a couple years later, that was us going, going again into the fight with the knowledge that we don't need to 
we already know that advertisers, given given the information, will do the right thing. We need to now go to the ad exchanges who are hurting their clients by continuing to place ads on other websites, just like Breitbart, and letting their clients take the heat for it. We're going to the ad exchanges who promised advertisers that they were going to vet their inventory, put them only on premium, high quality websites, and end up putting them on places like Breitbart or Steve Bannon's War Room or Tucker Carlson. And we're going to hold them accountable for that. Good. Well, let me ask you this then, because you keep talking about the bad actors. Who in your mind is the single most influential and dangerous voice coming out of the far right media ecosystem at this moment in time? Tucker Carlson. Yeah, I totally I totally agree with you. Why? Why do you why do you say that? I mean, I have my opinions as well. I think Tucker is potentially the most unhinged the most deranged human being on television so far. I mean, we see a lot of stupidity that comes, you know, that comes and goes on a daily basis. And of course, media, especially, you know, the the left and uh, centrist, you know, they'll start talking about it each and every time he says something ridiculous and stupid on television. But why do you why do you say that? Well, Unlike Dan Bongino, who's just really stupid and I think just ended up blocking himself from a lot of money and from a lot of potential exposure over the last few months because of his own actions, Tucker Carlson is extremely strategic and and he, he, he knows what he's doing and he knows what buttons to push. He knows how to push them. Um, he has and he has absolutely no need for money and he is 100 percent uh he's 100 percent safe at fox news so i also worked on the campaign to demonetize tucker carlson so i worked on the tucker carlson ad boycott over the last few years tucker carlson no longer has any national advertisers on his fox news show we got rid of all of them but he's still there and he's becoming more extremist than ever and fox news again I think they're just keeping him out of spite. <laughs> like they, they don't, Fox News is not affected at all by any of these boycotts, right? Like they make most of their money from cable box fees. So there's really not a lot that we can do to take on Tucker Carlson at this time. That is not saying in the future we can't do it. And that's something that we are gearing up for at Check My Ads Institute. We are gonna take on Fox News as a whole. We need to we need to work our way up there. But Tucker Carlson is um, he is building out an immediate empire, not only on Fox News, but on Fox Station. He has rabid followers who believe every single thing that he says. And I think he has the potential to um, to through his through his influence, crown, <laughs> crown the next president. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny that you say that because. One of the reasons that I believe Tucker does what he does is because he's actually considering a presidential run in the future. He sees himself as a potential president. And as he's building up, appropriately said by you, this, you know, we'll call him a MAGA army, 
right? Take over, become the Donald Trump 2.0 or the 3.0, depending upon who may run, you know, in 20, you know, 24, uh, being that I still don't believe that Donald will. But I believe that Tucker Carlson has taken Donald Trump's playbook, which has shown that it's got serious cracks in its in its armor. And I think he's smart enough to figure out how to fix those cracks and how to make them more um, more yeah. dangerous. And I think his I think his supporters and his um, sycophantic followers are the most dangerous people. Second to, of course, Donald. Nobody's going to beat Donald yet. But I think Tucker's a, a very close number two. Yeah, and that is why we need to take on Fox News head on. And one of the things that that when people ask me about, you know, Fox News, why does it matter? Why do you go after Fox News as advertisers when, again, they make most of their money from a completely different revenue stream? The reason is because Fox News depends on advertisers for not money, but for legitimacy. So once you so when so, some of these some of these disinformation sites, again, like Breitbart, they used to have the the biggest advertisers in the country running on their website. And now it's like toenail fungus ads and like dog nail clippers or something (laughs) like that makes a difference to the user's experience. They see that this is not a legitimate website when you don't see those ads that for brands that have, you know, some kind of prestige in your mind that makes a difference in the viewer's in the viewer's mind. Like they know they're on a garbage website. So Fox news has to date really sort of enjoyed a lot of legitimacy in the advertising industry just because they have they've spent they've invested a lot in making themselves in painting themselves to advertisers as a legitimate place to advertise just like CNN or NBC or MSNBC or whatever. Um, I see that because I, 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 I follow the interactive advertising bureau. That's the the IAB is the uh, industry's, uh, the industry association, the biggest industry association for advertisers. And Fox News is all over the place and all the, the the webinars about supporting the news. And it's like, well, you're not news, Fox News. So what we have to do is destroy that legitimacy. And we do that through advertising and by contacting advertisers. And to date, Fox News still has, uh, you know, when we went, for example, when we went after Tucker Carlson, a lot of these advertisers just moved their ads from Tucker Carlson to the morning shows or um, they they yeah, they just like moved it to a different part of Fox News. And then Fox News, for its part, it goes to advertisers and says, hey, you know, if you don't want to be with any of these these news anchors, they actively sell spots on other parts of their network. So um so that's so advertisers still feel safe advertising with Fox News. And that's what we have to take on. And that's something that, again, we're actively working towards. But we do need to work our way up there. And, and that requires more, uh, I guess, like we need to we're a new operation. But we are we do have the roadmap. We do have the playbook for doing that, for taking on Fox News. And, and, I, and I hope to be able to come back to you with good news in, in the near future. It's, it's going to be difficult. Look, Fox News is a very, very difficult organization to beat out. First and foremost, they're beaming into tens of millions of households each and every day. So advertisers are concerned about, you know, how many people will be seeing the commercial? How many people will learn for my dollar on our product? 
Not to mention, the Murdochs are ridiculously rich. And this isn't their one and only. They own multiple, multiple news sources and news outlets. So, yeah, you know, people don't want to break ties with the Murdochs, with Fox News, even though they are willing not to have their ads put on during the Tucker Carlson hour, that still doesn't take away the money from Fox, which if in fact that they started to lose the money, maybe, and I don't think they would because again, they're so rich, maybe then they would get rid of somebody like Tucker Carlson. But I'm not really sure about that. Let me move on for one quick second and ask you this. How much, of this, uh, how much of this material is still coming from foreign countries, like what we were talking about before? Because I, I believe that there was significant coverage after the 2016 election about Russian troll farms creating these massive quantities of right-wing content in the forms of memes and articles that was then spread all across social media and the entire right-wing ecosystem. Are you finding that these folks are still a factor in the current disinformation economy? You know, the scary thing about this is that we do not know how much of this propaganda is coming from foreign sources. And the reason for that is because ad tech companies will work with anyone. And when I say anyone, they will work with anonymous LLCs with just no information about who who the beneficiaries are and they and those LLCs work with other LLCs that are also anonymous there are entire chains of 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 like entire flows of money that are going from advertisers to completely unknown people it is the best and most effective way to launder your money today just to go through the advertising industry if you want to get money to somebody just place an ad on their website that is, there's, there's no accountability and there's no way for us to know. And a lot of these, a lot of these, you know, bad actors and, and folks who want to influence our elections are using these shell companies, these, you know, like Delaware shell companies and uh, not only placing, not only to get ad money, but also to access data about Americans, you know, because when you place an ad and, you know, what you get out of the, uh, of, of being a part of, of being plugged into the ad ecosystem is ads. Yeah, of course, data and dollars, or, or should I should say ads, dollars and data and data is, is the most valuable thing today. And because there's so much information floating around about us, our personal sensitive information, including where we are right now, you know, where, where we go to work every day, where we, where we get our coffees and things like that, that, that is incredibly sensitive, important information that a foreign, a company, sorry, a foreign adversary can obtain through the advertising supply chain. And that is why we're out here ringing the alarm bells. That's why it's so important for, for, these companies to fully unplug from people like the J6 insurrectionists. And that, by the way, is just the first step. We have a lot more work to do. Well, what, uh, what would be the second step, if you don't mind me asking? Well, when, when you talk about regulation, I agree with you. We do need regulation. And one of those things is uh, we, we need ad tech companies to quit working with these foreign LLCs, or, sorry, with these shell companies, with these anonymous LLCs, because if we don't know who is obtaining our money, who is obtaining our user data, we cannot have another, we will not have another democratic election. That is for sure. 
because this is this is again sensitive American data that's going to to people that we don't know. We cannot have that because they're using that again to flood our media ecosystem with more ads and to further radicalize our our country and to further influence our elections. Yeah, this it's it's dangerous. They're, they're, look, they're just dangerous people, right? And going back to the Tucker Carlson's and his followers, these people like yourself, I've received for years death threats, some like right out of Silence of the Lambs sort of shit. I mean, these people are absolutely batshit, fucking unhinged psychopaths that for some reason have gravitated towards the verbiage of the Donald Trumps, of the Tucker Carlsons, and so many of these, the Dan Bonginos, these right-wing conservative talk folks. Now, I know that about a month or so ago, you put out a tweet because you were being uh, trolled and um, there were people that were, you know, saying really some horrible, horrible things. And you wrote, I genuinely believe Dan Bongino and his team are trying to get me killed. These people have no boundaries and Magnite is the fucking monetizing the whole thing. If you would walk me through what happened here and I can sympathize with you. I lived this not for a month not for a year, but for four plus years, literally since 2017. I've been living with this thing on a regular basis. And the amount of hate that they're able to generate is staggering. Tell me your story. I'm really sorry you experienced that. And I'm sorry you are as well. It's, 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 really, it's really tough. Um, I've, I've definitely developed a very thick skin, a lot of you know, there's a constant, a constant stream of, of these type of messages in, in my inbox as well from, from my website. But honestly, a lot of it doesn't really get to me, but, and, and, and Bongino had been sort of slowly ramping up his attacks on me. So it went from cat lady to this Soros backed stooge, which is of course an anti-Semitic dog whistle, um, then it went to uh, calling my partner a sex predator, a child sex predator, uh, my, my business partner, Claire. And um, it just it was just constantly escalating and I could see where it was going. And on that particular day, they released a story saying that. So I had I had been tweeting about tw- Tim Pool the day before and the next day, Bongino put out the story saying that hours after I tweeted about Tim Pool, he was swatted. And the entire story was completely bullshit. And what they had done was taken two separate things, smushed them together, and uh, and, and created the f- false illustration that I had something to do with Tim Pool being swatted. And swatting, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's when you call in you call the cops and, and you know, and you say that there's a, a dangerous or violent event happening in, in your house and they come with, you know, their full SWAT team and it, it can get you killed, right? Like they're, they're ready to kill. Um, so for Bongino to suggest that I had something to do with that honestly scared the shit out of me because that was him saying to his viewers that I am a dangerous person and that they should, it was a call to action for them to retaliate. And that was, I mean, I felt unsafe before, but I felt 
I, I was really scared that day. Um, that was that to me, that really, really crossed a line. I mean, a lot of other things should have crossed a line, but for me personally, that was, that was when, when the line was crossed and, um, they like, this was this, this is like what I have been trying to say for all these years, a story like mine is, is what we have seen taking place in our media ecosystem all this time. It'll start out with something stupid, like crazy cat lady. And then they slowly escalate it and escalate it and escalate it and make it more extreme until there's nowhere to go, but violence and death and destruction. There is nowhere to go. It is a runaway train. There is no guardrails. There is no one stopping them from doing this. There's no one saying, no, this is wrong. And the only the only leverage, again, that we have is to go to the ad exchanges. And that's what I did. I went to the ad exchange and I said, the, the ad exchanges that were still working with him. And I said, what are you doing? I am going to get killed over this. Like, what are you waiting for? This is the incitement to, to violence that I've been talking about all this time for months. And uh, I, I still don't know if Magnite has 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 taken them has taken them down right now. Bongino doesn't have any ads on his website. Google, um, thankfully, I might have some angels within that company who you know who who I, and I also requested the public to reach out to Google and and to do something about this. And I, I can't say for sure whether I had any influence. My story had any influence on Google's decision, but. They they took him off of YouTube and then um, and then Claire and I we we said well if you take him off YouTube then you should take him off of your Google Ads on your website because that's still that's still the same content so because they were still placing the the display ads on on his website um, and then within a few days they took that down and and Bongino of course who can't help himself was like well we're firing Google. and so then he canceled typical, himself typical from Trump his, yeah typical Trump move yeah. where right after the fact you know. This really creates somewhat of a situation where, you know, is it becoming too much cancel culture? If we don't like what somebody's saying, then we can all get together. We can gang up on them, get them thrown off of Google, get their ad revenue taken from them and so on. Not that your story is in this genre, right? Um, I mean, what he did is wrong. And I almost believe that it's criminal, Um I do somewhat worry about um, that whole cancel culture, though cancel culture and misinformation, disinformation campaigns are clearly not the same. But one of the things that I was really excited about is I had heard, you know, um, Hillary Clinton um, was yesterday um, giving a, um, a keynote address at the New York State Democratic Convention that took place here in New York City, where... Of course, you know, she ripped into Trump for all of his antics. And um, she also took a pop shot uh, against the GOP and Fox News. But one of the things that I was kind of interested in is she sort of hinted that she may consider bringing a defamation lawsuit against Fox News uh, and many of the uh, Fox News contributors and uh, moderators that are doing to her the same thing that, in essence, that they're doing to you. So I certainly hope that she does bring this defamation lawsuit. I mean, 
I never heard that term before. Swatting, now of course I actually know what it is. Uh, I didn't even know that there was a term for it, but then again, all you young kids have these great terms anyway. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to see whether or not that lawsuit would survive, you know, a motion to dismiss, because they know what they're doing. And what they're doing has malice attached to it. And that's compensable. And that would not, fall, you know, that would not permit them to escape a defamation lawsuit. And I would like to see that happen, you know, especially in cases like yours. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad she's doing that. Um, I think that, I mean, obviously, she has the resources and the, and the time to do it. And I think that it would really, I think, help help maybe shape the conversation around this because it's almost like what was happening to me is just seen as normal. Like people get that it's bad, but it's almost like, well, I guess it just comes with the territory. No, it doesn't come with the territory. I mean, I guess it's easier to be like, well, it's Hillary Clinton and she's big and powerful and, and rich and all that. But I'm not one of those people. I am not rich. I am not powerful. I'm like, I'm none of those things. And this is happening to me like a private citizen activist. And I don't have any resources to deal with that stuff. So I, I think that it needs to be established that this is not okay. And it doesn't just happen to me. It happens to a lot of my, you know, colleagues in activism who are also just private citizens trying to make the world a better place. And we don't deserve that. That's like, that should not come with the territory. We have to have boundaries. And for so long, the conversation has been dominated by these like tech bro CEOs who, who say, you know, no, the line hasn't been crossed yet without experiencing, experiencing what, you know, we experience yourself included, Michael, and that's that's not okay. Um, and it's going to take a lot of work for us to push back on that. And that's why we work publicly. That's why we're always I'm, I'm always tweeting these things out because I want public accountability. I don't want these things to take place behind the scenes. I want the company to come out and say this is not okay behavior. This is this is not okay by us. We're not going to support this because that also gives other companies the courage to come out. And if we collectively do that in public, if we say this out loud, then we have a chance of coming back to some sense of normalcy. We can't just keep letting them get away with this and let except, that train keep running. Except that there's a, there's a couple of issues here. These people are genuinely fucking insane, right? Some of them are just greedy opportunists. But I, like you, I get enough death threats myself to know that there are some really genuinely terrifying people out there that is so filled with hate and poison and completely devoid of right and wrong, right, that have bought into the big lie, you know, that they're, they're like soldiers. They're this paramilitary group for Trump and others, and they will do just about anything in order to stay or think that they're in the good graces of the person that, you know, they're supporting. Aside from worrying about your own personal safety, how worried are you about these folks? I mean, from the darkest corners and what they're able or, or what they're capable of doing. I'm very worried. Uh, you, 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 you hit the nail on the head. These, these folks have whatever personal impulses they might have had have been amplified and legitimized and validated by their leaders in the media and 
they listen to, they take their orders from and listen to these people and it gives them a channel for their rage and it helps them find a community of other people who are just as mad as, as them, who listen to the same media, who consume the same ideas and it helps to strengthen their resolve. And the way that I see it as a marketer, it is a marketing funnel. You know, before I got into this work, I worked to sell stuff to people. And it's the same exact thing. You start them off at the top with some easy stuff, top of the funnel, and then you send them down the funnel as they become more and more qualified, as we called them, uh, until you make the sale. And then you get them to buy it again and again and again. And that is what they are doing. It is a marketing funnel. These are expert marketers and they have radicalized an entire population of people. But I don't think that there is no hope. If we can radicalize someone, not we, if they can radicalize someone, we can de-radicalize them. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. That is not what I'm saying at all. But there is hope. We can take them out of the funnel. And frankly, we can destroy that fucking funnel. That's what I want to see happen. So let me ask you this, because, you know, as I said, it's an hour long, you know, uh, conversation and hours just about up. I have one last question for you, which I think you'll appreciate more than anything. How can my listeners get involved? How can they help you to de-radicalize these individuals? And you're right. We will never, ever be able to hit the group. I mean, some of them are just so filled with hate and and um, anger that there's nothing that you could do. But maybe there are a big enough percentage that we can do something. How can my listeners get involved and do something? Thank you so much for asking. There's there's two ways that you can help. The first, of course, is to donate. We appreciate any financial contributions. We're a new institute and we are uh, gearing up to be here for the long term. Um, and to really take this on over, um, over hopefully the rest of my, the rest of my career. Uh, but secondly, and this is just as important, we don't want you to feel like the only way to help is to just throw money at the problem. That is not the only way to help. What we do at Check My Ads and what we're doing specifically for the defund the J6 insurrectionist campaign is we are sending our subscribers daily email actions where we provide you with an email template. We provide you with contact information of ad exchange executives, and we tell you exactly what to say to them. And we request that you just send the email. You can send the template or you can, you know, um, modify it for yourself and, 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 and send your email directly to a CEO, CMO, general counsel of these companies. Um, We've done all the research for you. And the reason that we ask you to do this is because the only thing that seems to create real change is for our, our followers to go directly to the decision makers at these companies and to say, I see you. This is not a company decision. This is a personal decision that you have made and you have the power to change it. And uh, so far, our our campaigns have led to just this week alone, we had uh, Quantcast, Yahoo, and possibly uh, possibly Critio take their ads off of Glenn Beck's The Blaze. So these emails are working and... Um, and it's just kind of, it's always kind of jarring for executives to hear from the average person. So if you can join us, if you want to join us, 
it's checkmyads.org slash J6. You can sign up for updates and we'll send you those emails for free. You do not have to give anything for that. But if you give, we appreciate that too. Nandini, thank you so much for for just bringing to my attention a whole world that I had very limited knowledge of. And obviously, we all need to know more about it. So thank you for joining me on Maya Culpa. And um, stay in touch because I'm interested in terms of what happens. It's been a pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Be well. And now for today's Maya Culpa. A popular refrain amongst the right is to believe that Vladimir Putin is invading Ukraine because President Biden is too weak to deter him. As one MAGA toady tweeted, I'm convinced that Putin would be a lot, lot more hesitant to invade if Trump was president. Biden simply does not evoke any sense of strength or danger to our enemies. This fucking absurd narrative was written by Donald Trump and his followers as an attempt to say that Trump, in all his authoritarian bluster, is the only man capable of keeping order in a world torn apart by rampaging immigrants and other enemies of the Christian order. He wants you to believe that, love him or loathe him, only Donald Trump is capable of keeping Americans safe by going toe-to-toe with its enemies. If only this were true. To believe this is to suffer from temporary amnesia about how Trump actually acted towards Putin while he was in office. Who can forget Trump's kowtow to Putin at Helsinki in 2018? The US president rejected the findings of the United States' own intelligence community about the hacking of the 2016 election and said, President Putin says it's not Russia. I don't see any reason why it would be. Or who can forget Trump's use of U.S. military aid to extort the government of Ukraine into helping him politically? It is simply the same sad refrain of Trump apologists trying to justify their support for a madman and destroyer of democracy. Now there is nowhere for them to go. Trump has crossed the rhetorical red line for his support of a Russian invasion. The truth is, we are seeing the results of five years of Trump's appeasement of Putin, followed by his attempt to overturn the 2020 election and his incitement of an insurrection. If America appears weak, it's because Donald Trump made us weak by dividing this nation in half and flooding us with nothing but bullshit. We are weak because Trump exploited the fault lines that lay deep inside the American psyche and ripped this nation apart. He made us weak by creating a scenario where 80% of Republicans believe that Joe Biden is not the president. He made us weak by creating a poisonous political environment where those same Republicans hold Putin in a more favorable light than our own president. When the dust settles and the history of this time is written, we will see the true extent of Trump's damage, how much it seeped into every aspect of our political life. His sins will continue to haunt us as long as he breathes. I only wish the world didn't have to pay such a high price. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. 
Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.